if I had come into government in 1994, the first thing I would have done is abolish townships. Our response in post-democratic South Africa has simply been a policy called BEE, a toothless policy called BEE that is unenforceable. Some of us have the benefit of living a first world experience. And we have other people who kill themselves and their children because they are hungry. That is, that is not something a single piece of legislation like BEE can fix. Having a judicial or a court finding in your favor is the absolute lowest bar. Where do we as a society stand on these things? And what do we allow to pass? You can, you can turn around a country in one generation. We've just failed to do so. The Seasons of Welsh Experience Podcast. Spread the fire. Welcome back to SMWX. And today I'm really excited to be joined by the chairperson of Rise Mzansi, Vuiswa Ramohopa. Thank you so much for joining us on SMWX. Thank you, Caesar. Good to be here. A birdie tells me you have watched the show before. So I have. I'm a very big fan of the show. Um, I've, I've certainly contributed to those views and reviews <laughs> and rewatched. So it's really great to be here finally. That's great. No, if people like you are watching, then you're doing something right. So... <laughs> Welcome, welcome aboard. What's it been like taking that bold step to start a new party and being involved in a project like a new political party in South Africa? Yeah, so maybe let me start a couple months back. Mm -hmm. um, when Rise Mzansi was formed officially uh, was around November 2022. And it effectively emerged out of months of work and research that had been done, uh, conversations that had happened with various civil society organizations that led to a conference that took place late October. And out of that conference, a resolution was taken that uh, a political alternative is required, but that it has to be championed and done somewhere else. Somebody needs to do it. And I was actually at that conference. I was attending as a general mm. person of interest. And so when that call was made, <clears throat> I heeded that call amongst, and like with others, and we said, okay, we'll form that initial task team that will do it. Yeah. And literally it started as teams calls amongst people who barely knew each other. Some of us knew each other loosely mm. Mm. and started to have conversations around how do we take that which we've heard forward yeah. and form it into the thing people want to see. And just reflecting deeply also on, you know, the research that we'd been exposed to, um, the work we ourselves had done in our various spaces, and started to start to really just think about what needed to be done. So it's, in many ways, it was no different from any other startup. I've been involved in many startups, I've started companies, and yeah. that, that's really where it started. A few people identifying a problem and ideating around what the best form of solution mm. is. And since then, it has been an adventure, to say the least. Mm. Uh, we have, we started in November, as I said, December, as you know, South Africa shuts down. So we had a bit of a pause then, but from the beginning of January, we've been running. 
It mm. was setting up websites, you know, coming up with branding, uh, going around trying to raise money, pitching ourselves to anyone and everyone that would listen. Yeah. Crafting our political positioning documents, working towards our launch in April 2023. And now um, it's about four months since our launch. And the work that we've been doing has involved crisscrossing the country, uh, going to all nine provinces, hosting uh, community engagements and meeting with different constituencies. Again, in a bid to try and really understand, you know, the, the texture and the, the, the truth of what South Africans are experiencing. Mm and working towards our policy uh, convention. And it's been, it's been eye-opening in many ways, uh, heartbreaking also, really difficult uh, in many instances. Uh, just two weeks ago, we were in the Western Cape. We were in Kailicha. And you, know, you, you want to meet people, and you have to walk through flooded areas. You, you enter people's homes, and people are literally living in a meter of water. Mm. You know. And some of that stuff is to see it up front, to feel it, to experience it is difficult. It's an assault on the senses, but it's also a reminder of how urgent the change that is required is. And so in many ways, it's also energizing. Um, so, yeah, it's been it's, yeah. it's had its ups and downs, let me say. Well, personally for you, because as you mentioned, you come from business, you've succeeded there. What has been the most challenging thing about this process of building a political alternative and what has been the most rewarding thing so far on a personal level on a personal level uh you know when when i made the decision uh the biggest consideration for me was of course personal physical risk mm. reputational risk sure, um sure. and the the, the idea that so much of this is out of your control. Mm. Uh, when mm. you start a business and you are the CEO or the founder of a business, you can direct the way everything goes. But a political movement is, is by design, you know, uncontrollable. Mm. You have to create something and allow others to, to shape it and take it in, in the direction that it needs to go. Sure. And so... You know, the risk aspect of it was huge. Of course, the reputational risk, and not just to mm. my person, mm. but also to my family. Mm. Um, I'm mm. a mother of three children. I have a husband who also works and, mm. you know, is, is senior in his company. I have a family. And the nature of politics, as you know, is that uh, it doesn't just affect you and your person. Oh. It also has spillover to, to your family. And Absolutely. so conversations had to be had across the board mm. with all of my family members. And it wasn't an instant yes, by the way, for many mm. people, people who love you would rather you don't go into politics. Yeah. And so yeah. that has really been the biggest um, adjustment for me. Mm. But at the same time, it's been very rewarding to do something that just means so much and is so important to me, at least this is more than, and I think to my colleagues as well, this is more than just starting a political party. It, it, it really, in our view, is our generational mission. It is our obligation to, to try and do our best and to, you know, lend that which we have, be it our skills, our resources, our capabilities, mm. to solving some of the greatest challenges of our time and making sure that 
you know, no South African is left behind as as we chart the course forward. Uh, so yeah, that that's mm. really for me. It's been it has been fulfilling in the the sense that I think, like many South Africans, I was feeling frustrated by the politics, and I was feeling powerless. You just wake up every day. You see the news stories telling you all these bad news stories. Yeah. You bemoan, you know, this person's doing this wrong. Everything is wrong, and you feel powerless. And basically, the next time you get to make your voice heard is at an election. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's the feeling that so many people have, um, and people are trying to make a difference in different ways, as was I, but it's not enough. Mm. And so, in a way, this this has given me an opportunity to actually be empowered to do something. Just on that, we don't talk enough about the personal toll that it takes to go into politics. And it's really fascinating to hear you speak about that because there's almost this view that, well, you've put yourself in the public domain. So therefore, whatever comes your way and your family's way is just part of part of the, the bargain. Mm. And we don't allow politicians or people in political parties to be vulnerable either, to be like, you know what? It's actually really difficult when you put yourself out there and your family's exposed. Mm. And yeah, I just don't think we're having a conversation about what it means to be a public figure in South Africa today. And the risk you take when you do that. And the way that nobody like even identifies with that because they're like, well, you're a public figure, so you deserve that. Absolutely. I would like to believe that I'm the anti-celebrity. I have zero interest in being a public figure, if we're (laughs) honest. It it just so happens it's kind of like incidental with this line of work, right? But I have a private Instagram profile. Mm. Until very Mm. recently, I had a private Twitter profile. Mm. I'm a very private person and I value that privacy. I don't Mm. have a big circle of friends. Sure. Trust is big for me, you know, so um, that has probably been the biggest thing that I'm still working through. Mm. Uh, It's I I don't ever want to really get to a point where you're walking through a shopping mall and people are just calling your name out and having opinions on you. I find that really bizarre. Um, But it is also, I suppose, part of the course. Mm. Um, And I think it's it is something that we don't talk about enough. There is a sense of entitlement also Mm. about Mm. public figures. Um, And I've seen it sort of at arm's length where people just dehumanize public figures. Mm. They feel like because you've put yourself out there, it means you are open to just being abused Mm. on Twitter Mm. or even in real life. Sure. And they suspend, you know, what is morally acceptable or socially acceptable in normal life Mm. when dealing with so-called public figures. And I do think there's there's something very concerning about that. I mean, ultimately, and I, I look at some celebrities, you know, yeah. like Beyonce and such people. Mm. Ultimately, it's your job. This is the work that you're doing. This mm. is the gift that you've been given that you're contributing to the world. Mm. It does not mean it's not an invitation to abuse yeah. Uh, yeah. or vitriol. And I think that as society, we need to do a bit of introspection about our relationship with, mm. with public figures. Mm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, shall we come on to some political questions? Because I guess that's <laughs> sure. what no that's problem. what a political that's party is. That's what I came is. here for. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Moonshot Pact. Yeah. Um, you weren't part of the Moonshot Pact as Rise Mzansi. Yeah. 
which has now been redubbed the the multi-party charter. Yes, yes, it has. What are your thoughts on on that initiative? I think there's mul- multiple su- levels to it. So mm. let me speak from Ryzen Zanz's perspective, and then I will give a broader view. Yeah. From our perspective, we had been engaged to be a part of of this um, okay. multi-party coalition. So you were approached. Yeah, we've been engaged yeah. uh, in the public domain, sure. actually. Um, and, you know, besides the fact that the way that the approach was made, let's park that, mm. uh, just from a process perspective, we felt that it would be very much putting the cart before the horse. We haven't even gone to a policy convention. Mm. We haven't even put out, uh, you know, a position on most issues. Sure. So on what basis would we be entering into a coalition mm. agreement, especially a pre-election agreement? But I think now on a broader level, I think that what is most concerning about some of these arrangements is the fact Mm. that, Mm. again, they do not center one, the people and the issues. Surely the basis of your union cannot be being united against something. Mm. Because and then in the same vein, you talk about service delivery. You know, what is the SLA of delivery that has been agreed upon? And I'm sure there's something said about that in the charter. I'm not I'm not saying nothing is said, but I'm saying the basis of any relationship, political, business, whatever the alliance should be, should be on the basis of a common political program that ultimately centers the needs of the people Mm. and what you're trying to deliver on. So from our perspective, again, we felt that that wasn't the basis of the discussion Mm. um you know if you are going to be in a multi-party democracy in a system like ours you are going to have to work with people Mm. and you're going to have to work with constituencies um, that you may or may not agree with ideologically but ultimately you should be able to pull yourselves towards a common center and form a, a sort of common political program that ultimately delivers outcomes for the citizens and so, so for us, really, it's, it's, it's very much a reinforcement of what we think is wrong with politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, politics has become the three Ps, the politics of the politicians, the positions, and the power. Can I add a fourth? Yeah. The patriarchs. And the patriarchs, absolutely. Uh, more on that later. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know? and, I think, and I think that is so much of what people are rejecting right mm. now in politics. Mm. So the 70% of the eligible voters that choose not to vote Mm. are not doing so because they haven't seen the right mix of coalition. They're doing so because they are rejecting Mm. the politics that is available right now and the political offerings that are available right now. And what is not being done or what maybe many in the political establishment are not willing to do is actually go back to source, go back to the people, actually apply your mind to what it is that they want and need, mm. and then commit yourself to delivering that. That's how you get votes. Mm. Mm. Not by cobbling together, you know, everyone bring your five rand, five rand, five rand, five rand, eventually we get to a hundred rand. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. so I'm saying, you know, from our perspective, we we criticize we we can critique ourselves and say we've mm. taken the absolute longest route in politics sure the longest route is the route of being grounded in research spending time in communities 
seeking to have an open dialogue with communities, seeking to reinstill accountability into politics, and willing to do the hard yards of actually securing a popular mandate from South Africans by bringing forward a political offering that is broadly palatable and desirable to the vast majority of South Africans. Uh, we, we're not going to get you know, the South Africa that we deserve uh, through the lens of opposition or minority politics. We have to go back to the center, to a place where we as South Africans can collectively craft a common vision for this country. And it doesn't happen whilst we are all, you know, hiding in our little ideological enclaves and holding on to our little 2% and 3%. Absolutely. Um, sure, there's so much that, that I'd like to pick up on there. I mean, one, the fourth P, the patriarchs. When I looked at the multi-party charter, quite aside from whether you think the parties offer the answers that South Africa needs, all men, leaders, and you're just like, wow. So even the alternative can't think outside of the problems with the status quo. And we seem to have some kind of deep-seated crisis of the systematic marginalization of women's voices in politics in South Africa. Mm -hmm. um, one that even opposition parties, as they currently exist, at least the ones that are in parliament, have not managed to think think beyond. What do you think is, is behind that? So I think that you're, you're spot on and the, the systematic patriarchy that you refer to is not just unique to politics. It is part sure. of life sure. in South Africa. Yeah. It is part of how our economy works and the, the economy and the ways in which the uh, value in the economy is distributed has a very big part to play in that. Mm. But it's a chicken and egg kind of thing. So let, let, me, let me deal with the politics mm. and say, you know, political leaders, one, don't put themselves there, right? So they're voted in by an electorate. Sure, sure. Um, and... Hopefully, we imagine that they represent the ideals, the values, whatever, of society. So we can't deal with issues of patriarchy in a cosmetic way. I, as much as I would love to see many more women heads of state, women CEOs of companies mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. leaders, I also acknowledge that it cannot simply be a quota exercise or a cosmetic exercise. Sure, sure. We have to be able to understand and unpack the systemic and structural reasons and how patriarchy reinforces itself because that's how we get the outcomes that we get. So, yeah. and, and in saying that, an organization, by the way, could have a male leader, but be systemically, you know, mm. gender mm. equal. Mm if you understand what I'm no, saying. No, absolutely. absolutely. Where sure. there is genuine equal opportunity mm. for the best leaders to thrive and the best leaders to make their voices heard. Yeah, yeah. And out of that process, you could have a rotation of leaders of different genders. So I think for me, the bigger call to action or the bigger self-reflection that we need to be having in South Africa yeah. is around what are the many ways in which the political, economic, social interface uh, is currently kicking out the outcomes that we're seeing. Mm, mm. And what do we need to do to fundamentally restructure? Yeah. 
And I mean, just to give you an example, if you look, for example, at the simple question of, of like land ownership in South Africa, <clears throat> and the fact that uh, as much as we have a, an unequal distribution of land, sure. we have an even more unequal distribution of land as far as it comes to women ownership mm. of land. Mm. As mm. much as women are in many instances primary uh, heads of households, but they, are, they have the smallest ownership of land, and that's across mm. racial lines, mm. right? Mm. So if you accept that land is a fundamental resource towards economic progress or wealth creation or whatever, sure. and that that should, in essence, influence the way society works and politics works, mm. then you can't, you can't have conversations about who sits at the top without asking mm. the question of mm. how society creates those problems in the first place. Sure. And so I suppose in, in closing, what I'm saying is we have to deal with these things systemically. We have to mm. deal with them structurally. But we also need to, as women, take a responsibility. Mm. Those of us who are already in positions of leadership or in positions of influence need to be using our voices and our power to be able to create space and restructure the spaces in which we are in. Mm. Mm. Uh, I can't just go and accept that I'm a first woman CEO of whatever sure. or a first woman le leader of whatever. And then I don't use my power and influence to structurally change mm. the institution in which I've been appointed. I just reinforce the same old patterns. It doesn't work also. Absolutely. I guess one of the other questions of identity that pervades South African politics is the question of racial inequality. And as you already mentioned, that is in dialogue with the question of gender equality. I've always been searching for a party that on the one hand just gets racial inequality unambiguously, but is also, I can feel that there's a practical way that if they implement their policies, I can see that happening. And I feel like RISE is one of the interesting alternatives that is approaching that wonderful balance between like, yes, we have racial injustice and we're going to address that unequivocally. But while we do that, there's certain practical constraints economically and we can't just do everything at once, for example. Yeah. Which is a criticism of, for example, the EFF. Yeah. Um, they get racial justice probably better than anyone, but then with their policies, many people are like, whoa, okay. I don't know. I, I don't see how exactly that would work in practice. Yeah. Do you think that you have struck the right balance on on that fundamental question in Rise and Zanzi? And, and how, how do you strike that balance? Spread the fire, fam. This is just a quick reminder that if you'd like to buy one of my two books, The New Apartheid or Democracy and Delusion, which have both been bestsellers in South Africa, click the link below. If you live in South Africa, we can deliver it to your door. If you're outside of South Africa, you can get it on Kindle or on Amazon Audible. Okay, let's get back into it. So, yeah, so I think as a starting point, it is important to again reiterate that we haven't gone to a policy convention. Sure, sure. So we have not yet, I'd say, put out a set of detailed solutions, but they will be published in the next few months, and I'm looking forward to that. Mm. However, of course, uh, that which binds us together is our common desire to, and our common worldview, mm. um, which centers economic justice, equality, prosperity, 
and unity um, and safety, of course. And all of those things work well with each other or work together. Mm. Uh, so again, if I come back to what I was referring to earlier, the starting point of the discussion around racial inequality is an acceptance that we arrived here by a process of design. In fact, our oppressors, the previous apartheid government, were spectacular designers of inequality. They sure. built it into every single institution, into the way our cities were planned and designed, into the way our financial system works, into the laws of this country. It was a guiding principle for how every single aspect of society was conceived and thought about. And I'm raising that because our response in post-democratic South Africa has simply been a policy called BEE, mm. a toothless policy called BEE that is unenforceable and where there are no consequences for not mm. adhering to BEE. Sure. So unenforceable on the one hand, and even if it did, does happen, you can't track. It, even if it does happen, yeah. it is what it's one. Mm. Mm. It's literally one policy mm. in one aspect. In of one society, aspect of society, the commercial world. So basically. it demonstrates to me that the people who claim to want to undo mm. the wrongs of the past mm. actually have no fundamental understanding of how mm. you you actually develop a society. And and I want to almost to zoom out a little bit because what we're trying to solve for here is actually how we rapidly catalyze the development and the, call it social inclusion, of an entire segment of society in which our country is 80% of mm. the population mm. and close that gap because we are currently living in a country where you've got people who are living in a first world economy. Some of us have the benefit of living a first world experience. We have high paced internet, we drive on roads in German cars, our kids go to good schools, we travel the world, and we have other people who kill themselves and their children, women who kill themselves and their children because they are hungry mm. and they have no options and choices. Mm. That, is, that is not something a single piece of legislation like BEE can fix. Sure. So you have to be able to think through what does a modern, thriving, Afrocentric economy need to look like? And what are the social institutions, financial institutions, uh, laws, of course, mm. Uh, what is the education system that underpins that type of economy? How do we uh, create not just graduates, but people who are employable in the type of economy that we have designed and created? And then how do we then plan around that? Mm. So, mm. for example, if you look at our cities, if I had come into government in 1994, the first thing I would have done is abolish townships. But what have we done? We've gone and created a thing called township economy, mm. township in dun dun Townships were a design issue. They mm. were created to support a certain economic mm. structure mm. and a certain set, you know, set of social values. Yeah. If you were serious about wanting to undo that, your first policy should have been a social inclusion policy. Yeah. How do we get people reintegrated? racially, mm. socially, and economically with each other, and do that through physical, spatial inclusion mm. policies. Mm. Not these half-baked mm. ideas that we've been throwing around. So again, our view 
is, is a long-term one. We recognize that you are not going to be able to undo one 30 years of mismanagement and a hundred years of, you know, well-crafted, well-implemented segregation and inequality policy. You're not gonna undo that in one election cycle or in, even in five years, mm. which is why we frame our vision as a generational one. We do believe that if you have policy, the combination of good, well-thought-out policy and competent, credible leadership that is placed there on the basis of merit, and meritocracy, supported by decent financial institutions that actually serve the economic uh, you know, growth path that you're on, you can, you can turn around a country in one generation. We've just failed to do so. It's interesting. Um, one thing for your policy conference to, to consider when, when you say that and, and when we think back to the way that this monstrosity of a society of ours in many ways has been designed for separation. One of the interesting things I noticed about, about it when looking back and trying to study it was the coordination of legislation. So yeah, we have one BEE law and that's like it, mm. basically. Mm. Okay, the Mandela administration had like some coordination going on and we're still like surviving on those laws from mm. like 30 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but what what does a full legislative agenda look like for for a new parliament where it's like, okay, in this five years, we're really going to legislate deeply and we're going to do like not one law or two, but like 30, you know, that are going to be the foundations of a new society. So when we come to elections, there's a lot of like what the executive will do. But it's funny because we're actually voting in parliament and it's yeah. like, what raft of laws yeah. could we could we institute over the next five years that would serve us for the next generation? And these are the, the, the 20 we think we need now. You know, That for me would be an interesting project. Absolutely. And I'm going to, I've noted it. Mm. Um, and I think that one thing you've captured is the fact that South Africans broadly, I mean, I'd be surprised if even 1% of South Africans read manifestos. Okay. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. I'm a manifesto reader because I like yeah. such content. Sure. But <laughs> the broad majority of South Africans yeah. do not read manifestos. Yeah. But what the broad majority of South Africans are looking for is a plan. Mm. They want to know how we're going to get out of the dwang that we are currently in. <laughs> and in fact, and I'm, I'm probably sharing too much here, but I think economic policy mm. needs to be the, what we eat, sleep and, and, and mm. dream mm. for, you know, mm. breakfast, lunch and dinner. Yeah, sure. Uh, there's a lot of parties, which you've correctly stated, who mm. are loud on, on ideological positioning uh, but their economic perspective doesn't hold weight. It's, un it's either untested or it's tested and failed. And South Africans are not stupid. They're like, but that doesn't work, you know? So mm. I think that's going to be the real uh, test. And yeah. I, I think South Africans must hold us accountable to that. Mm. Uh, in fact, we are actually holding an economic policy workshop, I think it's called, mm. this evening. Um, where we are engaging with different economists, those who hold different views, because it's also important to have a diversity of views. There isn't one solution to how we fix South Africa. Sure. 
So we are on a mission right now of engaging with some of the top minds in society, people who are economists, but also people who have worked mm. in some of our biggest institutions, mm. the Reserve Bank, you know, Treasury, et cetera, sure. et cetera, to understand what are the levers of change. Sometimes it is legislation, yeah, sure. but sometimes it's not. Mm. Sometimes mm. it's actually things that can already be done within the current legislative yeah. uh, you know, mandate. And actually, all you need to do is just have the right person in the chair who's able to execute that. Mm. And that's also a very big part of it, Sizwe. It's the, it's the elephant in the room that people don't like to admit. Yeah. Leadership matters. I think we've... We, we, leadership matters. Yeah. The quality of leadership is the single biggest determinant of whether any organization, political or otherwise, is going to succeed or fail. You know, I feel like we've had lackluster leadership for so long that we don't even know what great leadership looks like anymore exactly and and i feel like when we get it we will be so relieved if we ever get that lucky again we've just come to accept that lackluster is is the standard and that's the standard we deserve it's even worse it's even worse when it's like i always use this example it's like when you are you've been dating trash guys your whole life (laughs) All you know is to be treated badly. Mm, mm, and then mm. Romeo shows up mm. and all he wants to do is treat you right, look after your kids, take your car for car wash on Sunday. We actually treat that guy worse. Mm. We actually treat him worse mm. because he's paying for the sins of all the other people that came before us. Mm. So you mm. now approach that one with the, with the level of vitriol that you actually should have given to all the others sure. that came before. Sure. I don't think you can relate necessarily because you're like, <laughs> sitting on the other side. Okay. Ooh, car wash on Sunday. That's but, really <laughs> well, yeah. you know, that's, that's how we live. Okay. okay, okay. <laughs> now, when Tamea sees this, it's going to be like, so sun, it's yeah, Sunday yeah, now. Yeah, that's, that's how some of us live. Soft, <laughs> soft life, <laughs> this side. Um, but, but yeah, my point is, you know, even when mm. people do step up or people do take positions of kind of, let me say, being courageous, speaking out Mm. against things, Mm. willing to put their neck on the block. Bizarrely, Mm. they they are the ones who get the biggest stones thrown at them. Like more than the people who are messing up. More than the people who are messing up. Yeah, that's so true. I think think in some ways, Rise and Zanzi is is a victim of that. It's like, because you've stuck your respective necks out, people are like taking it out on you more than they would the ANC. And I'm like, I mean, I don't know what Rising Zanzi is going to become, but yeah. I'm willing I'm willing to listen, at least. And thank you. But, you know, I think that's exactly the conversation. It's like, okay, it's fine. You don't have to love mm. Rising Zanzi. Mm. But let's be honest also about what's currently happening yeah. and what's currently available. Rising Zanzi certainly didn't get us into this position. Yeah, that's for sure. yeah we didn't. Rising Zanzi mm. didn't get us here, number one. And number two, sitting on the sidelines throwing stones at people mm. isn't going to get us out. Mm. 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 So it's either you accept that you love being here in the yeah. Dwang, with poor leadership who yeah. treat us like trash, yeah. cheat on us, steal our money, write off our car, mm. and then make us pay for it. Mm. You know, or you're going to make a decision that I'm ready to start a new life yeah. in a new country, no, not a new country, in sure. a new space with a new with a new person. Mm. And that's really that's really the call to action. It's saying we can't be here forever. 
uh, and many, I imagine, I mean, you happen to be one of the brightest minds in this country, but there are so many that have left mm, who have said, absolutely. and this is across racial lines. Yeah, that's the scary thing. Like young black South Africans now are also leaving in droves. Are also leaving in droves. You know, uh, the creative sector also breaks my heart every day mm. because we should actually be I've never heard anyone in government say the creative sector is a strategic sector of the economy. I've never heard those words mm. being uttered. Mm. But as we speak right now, we are exporting. In, I'm a piano. We are so exporting true. black coffee. We're exporting Trevor Noah. Mm. Mm. We are some of the biggest global exporters of mm. like the best creative talent and art and you know contributions in the world. Yeah. We have not once called it a strategic sector. So true. And so if I was in the creative sector, Mm. I also would be looking to go to Hollywood or wherever I'm going to get the record deal Mm. or the kind of appreciation for my art and my craft. Yeah. You're not going to find that here. So true. And there's, I mean, there's a whole economy of equipment manufacturing behind that. There are various skills of photography and design and art that people are just learning themselves. They're not even going to university to learn and are doing at a world leading level. And we're just ignoring that whole thing that's happening and are like, completely. let's look at traditional sectors. Traditional sectors, we are squabbling over Mm. whether it's coal or Mm. solar. I mean, Mm. those are important conversations, but I'm saying there is so much happening. Uh, You know, last night we held a, uh, well, we we hosted actually a premiere of a production, Mm. political theater, satire production and we uh, one of the uh, groups that performed was a group of Tembisa production group now this is a group of young self-formed mm. self-organized actors singers performing artists we met them in Tembisa when we were busy doing our road shows and our community engagements mm. And just thought, this is just such incredible talent. So we hosted a fundraising um, evening last night where we booked, you know, had the theater actually donated to us. And uh, we got people in the theater to buy tickets. And we invited the Tembisa group to come and perform on the stage at yeah. Santon Theater. The point of the story is that I'm saying, these are young people mm. with zero resources who organize themselves they write their own scripts, mm. they create their own productions, they write their own music, they direct their own plays, they put on shows all over, uh, you know, Tembisa, where they're from. And yet we are sitting having ex- esoteric conversations about township economy, mm. ing, 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 ing. and I'm mm. saying, it's here already. Yeah. Yeah. Your township economy is right under your nose, mm. but you don't see it because you actually don't know about building an economy. Before we conclude, can I ask you a juicy political question of the day? Uh, (laughs) President Ramaphosa, the South African Reserve Bank just came back with what I can only describe as a strange statement that all is is fine. Yeah. Uh, What are your thoughts on that since we are talking about leadership and political leadership in South Africa now? Sure. Indeed, the the statement made by the Reserve Bank was bizarre, to say the least, and The crux of it is that no sale happened. Therefore, nothing to see here, folks. Which is bizarre, 
but it doesn't answer the question of, okay, then why is there for millions and millions in the couch? Because yeah. that we've established happened. We've got that, you know. So, but to your question, what that says to me, and it's, it's again just a reinforcement of everything that is that has become so wrong about uh, the political mm -hmm. culture and the political establishment. We just allow just that which would be completely unacceptable in other countries. The countries that, some of the countries that we are sitting with now in BRICS, that we are having trade mm. agreements and arrangements with, would never allow that level of, you know, call it corruption or, uh, I don't, actually, let me not call it corruption. I don't want to be quoted as saying it was mm. corruption, but I'm sure, saying, sure. You, you know, there's, there's a, there's, there needs to be some kind of common ethical mm. basis for leadership that we all agree upon. And unfortunately, our basis is the, the guilty, what is it, innocent, innocent mm. until proven guilty. Yeah. That's the absolute lowest bench. It's the lowest bar. Mm. Mm. Having a judicial or a court finding in your favor is the absolute lowest bar. Where do we as a society stand on these things? And what do we allow to pass? So fine, on a technical basis, one may find not a sale did not take place, but we can all see. We can all see and we heard mm. that something went wrong and it just ends there. So there should be criminal proceedings that get pursued, but we all know that that won't happen. And we don't even have the capacity to move that forward because you know, the majority ANC parliament has resolved that they're not going to pursue matters any further. Mm. And so we sit with our mouths open as citizens and our hands tied, mm. unable to take the matter further. And, and I think that's, that is inherently what is wrong with the, with the system. Um, so really, you know, this is not even about, Palapala is one of. The sure. unfortunate part of it is that it affects the highest office in the land. You know, some of my colleagues and I often have debates around the, the private and the public, mm. for example, for, mm. for, for political leaders. You know, if somebody is cheating on his wife or cheating on their husband, mm. uh, of course, that is not a criminal offense. But what does it say sure. about the morals and ethics of the leader? Mm. And we as a society need to be able to calibrate ourselves around a common understanding of what we think is acceptable behavior. Mm. Because outside of that, we will never be able to craft a vision as a country and move forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's let's end um, because I know you're a, a busy person with with many places to go. But what what would your ideal scenario be when the results are announced on election day in 2024, and also after a government has been has been formed. What do you think? I mean, we can talk about all the scenarios, but what would what would the best scenario look like for you? So we have embarked on this mission, not, um, you know, and I think I've said this in other platforms, perhaps not today, but yeah. we've embarked on this mission, not from the perspective of an opposition party or an opposition voice. Mm. We have embarked on this mission because we believe that South Africa needs a reset. 
we believe that there needs to be a fundamental and substantive change, both in the political culture, the political establishment, the leadership, uh, institutions need to be overhauled, legislation needs to be relooked. We believe that South Africa needs a new vision. So in saying that, we recognize that that is a longer term lens and that we will have to work towards getting to a point where we ourselves are in governance. Sure. It would be wonderful if that were to happen in 2024, mm. but uh, we'll see. You know, I think it, it really rests in our hands and our ability to get our message to as many people as possible. Mm. I respect that a lot, by the way, because often you hear like a new party that started for the election, we're going to get a two thirds majority. And it's like, that's probably not going to happen. And voters know that's not going to happen. But what is the plan yeah. anyway? So the plan, mm. nonetheless, mm. Mm. is to uh, deliver an electoral performance that puts us in positions of significant influence yeah. in the provinces where we govern or sure. where we have representation, sure. as well as at a national level. Mm. So we are contesting all nine provinces. Mm. Mm. We are not equally, we're not looking at all of them equally. Sure. There are obviously some where we believe we have uh, where the ground is more fertile mm. and where we have greater chance. Yeah. No, I won't tell you what those are okay. in this moment. <laughs> <laughs> you literally saw the question yeah, come to Yeah, I saw it happen. Um, and then at a national level, we believe that we have the potential to again um, deliver the kind of electoral performance that will make us quite influential in parliament. Yeah. As much as the Twitter people like to say that ah, these ones aren't going to get a seat, mm. we assure you we're going to get many seats. Mm. Mm. And those seats will be used to further the vision that we believe South Africans uh, want to see. And that will possibly in instances involve working with other parties. It will also involve sourcing leaders from all parts of society mm. to go and sit in those seats. So a big part of what we're doing now, or we're going to roll out a campaign soon, is actually going out and sourcing the best leaders in society mm. so that when we get those seats, we fill them with the best minds in society, mm. we fill those executive roles that we have with the best in society, and we can start to implement the change that we want to see. Fuiswa Ramahopa, thank you so much for joining us on SMWX. Thank you. So great to be here. Aye. The Caesar and Welsh Experience Podcast. Aye. 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 Aye.